following program has been brought to you by Barterhouse Wines. Well, I think I think part of the sourcing process to me is the most exciting because you you know you rent a car and you drive through the south of France and you know you obviously have some appointments set up, but you know some of the most exciting things happen when you're just kind of winging it. And you meet a farmer at you know a wine fair, and he's you know, he says, "Well, come back to my come back to my estate," and you're not quite sure where you're going. You follow a guy in a Peugeot, you know, up a rambling hill, and all of a sudden you you come across either a castle or a, like a shack in the woods, and the guy's making wine out of a, the back of his you know house, or he could be making wine out of a major estate. You know, looks are deceiving, but you you want to. You want to assume that someone with a very established chateau is making good wine, but nine times out of ten, the guy out of the garage who's like super passionate is making these better wines and they're maybe more, more rustic and less polished. So to me, like the restaurateur, the sommelier, this story resonates with them about the small farmer, you know, the guy who's making wine um, on small quantities, 80 cases, 100 cases. Those are the things exciting to Barterhouse and hopefully the things exciting to our clients. Happy Monday to everybody out there, and welcome to the baddest episode of Cutting the Curd that there ever was. Uh, I'm your host, Anne Saxelby. Uh, my co-host is Sophie Schlesinger, and today we are talking the state of cheese in Pennsylvania. Ooh, yeah. Traveling to the West, the longest state if you're ever driving from New York to Chicago. Right. Um, so we are going to be talking with... Um, uh, Jay Montgomery from Calkins Creamery, Trent Hendricks from Hendricks Farm, and hopefully learning what cup cheese is all about. Right. That's a strange one that Sophie yes. found in her research. <laughs> <laughs> Wikipedia is still a little unsure, I think, of what it is exactly. I think we can uh, we can maybe, uh, after the show, hopefully we could update it and become like you yeah. know, the Wikipedia source. Yeah. Hopefully we won't get edited. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, our first guest, uh, like I said, is Jay Montgomery from Calkins Creamery. Um, they make a range of really, really fantastic cheeses that I'm very proud to sell. Um, Jay, are you with us? I am. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. Thanks Hi, so Jen. much for being on the show. No problem. Um, so maybe we can start off with a bit of history about um, Calkins Creamery, because you guys are a really, really well-established <laughs> dairy farm. Oh, I appreciate it. Um, yeah, I can tell you a little bit about the farm and the creamery. Um, you know, we're actually a family farm first, and today we're on our sixth generation back on the farm. Wow. And this is my wife's family, the Bryants. Uh, they started on this farm in, I think, 1841, wow. when people came down from, I think, they, my father always tells me, Connecticut, and started clearing <laughs> land and started farming. And, and were they, uh, what, uh, what was their um, descent, or what was their descent? Are they from? Uh, uh, oh, Wales. Wales, okay. Yeah, Welsh family. Okay. Um, and so they uh, they established uh, the farm there. And was it always a dairy farm, or has that evolved? Hard time hearing you, and there's a loud buzzing. Oh, okay. Um, uh, is oh, that better? Is that better? 
Yeah. Okay, great. Um, I was asking if the farm was always a dairy farm or if that uh, sort of evolved over time. You know, it, it was always a dairy farm. Um, from what I've heard, there were, you know, there was a period where there were some sheep maybe uh, 60 years ago. But primarily, it's always been registered Holstein cattle. Okay, okay. And was that typical of the area where you guys are, are located? Were there many dairy farms uh, uh, in your area? Yeah, there were. Um, you know, I think as recently as, uh, as 10 years ago, we probably had over 200 in our county. Wow. wow. That number's changed quite a bit since then, as you can imagine. But. Absolutely. And so what was the um, motivation for you and Emily to come back to the family farm? Well, it was kind of a basket of, of, uh, of causes. Uh, we had a, a barn fire in 2002, I think. And, uh, and when her father and, and mother and, and brother decided to rebuild the barn and the farm under those economic conditions, we thought, well, maybe there's something we can do to help. And, uh, you know, Emily is a trained food scientist with a strong food safety background. And I've worked in engineering in the food industry for a while. So we thought, well, this is something we can do. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. So, I mean, I, I feel like one of the most fascinating things about all of America, America's sort of farmstead cheesemakers um, is the fact that they've come from such different backgrounds. It's very rare to find somebody who was a born, you know, dairy farmer um, making cheese. So can you talk a little bit about how your backgrounds kind of uh, have come to be super useful <laughs> now that you're making yeah. cheese? <laughs> yeah, I mean, mainly mainly Emily. Emily's the brains behind the, the whole operation. I mean, what we've asked her to do is is a, is a very tall task, uh, you know, going from, uh, from, from never making cheese ever to, you know, running your own creamery. And especially when you start out, uh, try not to scrap anything because, you know, your cash flow is so difficult when you're starting. But Emily's background in food science was uh, an asset then. It's, a, it's an asset now, and it's going to be more of an asset in the future, especially as uh, there's more and more talk of food safety. And, you know, we do make cheese with raw milk here on our farm. Mm -hmm. So we realize the importance of a good environmental surveillance program, you know, firewall between, you know, the farm and the creamery. You know, those are just basic things. And then she can take it to the next level with her background. That's really, I, I feel like that's invaluable. I, I definitely wanted to ask you more about that because I feel like, especially in the past year or so, there's been so much more scrutiny of small cheese producers. Um, so, yeah, what kind of uh, what kind of best practices, if you had to name maybe five, you know, that you could share with our listeners? Maybe there are other cheesemakers listening in that could uh, that could benefit from that. Well, I think the uh, the number one thing you've got to do, and I think she would agree, is restrict foot traffic. Um, you know, it's a family farm, and there's people coming and going, and there's a lot of activity. And if you don't have strong controls in place about who can go where, wearing what. You know that's when some contamination can occur, and we don't we don't have that issue, thankfully. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, um, and I'd say the second one, probably you know she uh, she can test for coliform, she can plate samples in the creamery, so she can actually um, exceed you know the, the Pennsylvania Department of Agriculture standards. Right. You know things that are not required. Wow. Um, so you guys do a lot of extra testing yourselves just to constantly monitor. Yeah, we do, because you want to be sure you've got a clean, safe product. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. 
And would there be would there be a third, or do you think that those two are kind of the, some of the most simple and most important? Well, I think probably the third, and I think the you know the rest of the family would agree that the good milking practices up at the barn on the input side mm. are just as important as what's happening down below. Absolutely. And so, how do you guys communicate about that? Um, because yeah, the whole family's involved, so that must be a pretty interesting process. <laughs> well, family communication. <laughs> I'm learning. You know, I'm not from the farm. <laughs> But as I watch it, it's it's an interesting dynamic. So what you've got is you've got you know Bill, which is Emily's father, and then her brother Zach, who who also has a degree from Penn State in, in animal science, back uh, doing the rotational grazing program and all that. Those three have to communicate every day. Um, sometimes I guess it's just what we'd call water cooler chat. But other times it's stuff that's more important, such as hey, they're they're changing the diet of the cattle coming up, or you know you're you're counting down the days till the cows can get back on the grass because that changes what cheese you're going to make and with what frequency. Mm-hmm. So you know. And can you tell us a little bit about some of the cheeses that you make and and how you market those? Yeah, um, I think she probably started. Uh, some more basic cheeses that we thought we could sell, you know, in a variety of locations, like the town and the country. Right. Like Gouda, Baby Gouda, that's a very popular cheese for uh, and cheddar. You know, it was like the first year, we're in year five, and since then, she's added some other platforms, such as Tome. She does a Tome named Daisy, which is very nice. Um, and then we finally got into aging our Goudas out, so we have a, uh, a cave on the neighboring property, uh, which was an old vineyard that we now age some of those cheeses in. And in the past two years, I think what she would say she spends the majority of her time on is a soft, ripened uh, beauty we call Noble Road. Woohoo! <laughs> we love the Noble Road. <laughs> yeah, it's a very finicky cheese, and when you're, you know, you're only five years in, uh, it's, I think it's probably pretty challenging for anybody. But uh, she does a good job. Sometimes our pigs... Uh, are not only way fed sometimes they're brief fed but <laughs> <laughs> not Lucky, too often yeah. thankfully <laughs> oh i love it you could start pennsylvania brief fed or brief fed pork yeah. a whole new marketing campaign yeah. <laughs> um well hopefully that would be a very very limited edition <laughs> of um, yeah it would have to be yes yeah <laughs> and that reminds me actually do you, you guys do other stuff on the farm too don't you you have a do you, do you have a csa and another yeah. Well, we don't do a CSA like a formal CSA, but um, beyond the ch- so the farm is always open for visitors. And and you know in terms of like farmers markets, like Bill and Zach don't get out to the markets much because they're farming. But if you come mm-hmm. to our farm, they always spend time with the customers, so that's nice. But once you come here, you can get all the cheeses. Um, you can get uh, grass-fed ground beef and steaks. Um, we mentioned the pork. So what we do is we we raise like 16 pigs twice a year. And we market those as whey-fed pigs because, as you ladies know, we generate a lot of whey. Mm-hmm. Very good protein source for the pigs. Right. We sell those on the Internet, actually, where we just sell deposits. People pay their deposits on the Internet, and maybe three, four months later, they show up at the farm and pick up their USDA butchered and ready-to-go pork. It's a pretty good deal. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and then a small one, you know, I want to mention it, though, because I think it contributes to healthy pastures, is raw honey. So we keep about 22 uh, hives back in the middle of the pastures. Wow, wow. And so how, the, speaking of the pasture, you know, you're talking a lot about how that influences the cheeses you make and that kind of thing. Um, what is the lay of the land uh, of the farm? How many acres do you guys have, and how is it kind of divvied up? 
Well, it's about 260 acres, but what's this, and of that 260, about 100 of it is wooded or forested, mm-hmm. and the rest is broken up into pastures with, uh, with I, I guess I call them uh, water, uh, big concrete water tanks that we pump water from a well using solar power and, and send water out there so the cows can stay outside longer, especially on the hot days. Cool. But beyond those 260 acres, most of what surrounds our farm are old farms that are no longer in operation. Right. So my father-in-law, uh, you know, he cuts hay on that property, you know, upkeeps the land, um, tries to take care of it for the people that, you know, um, maybe they're not farming anymore, but they don't want to get rid of the land and, and divide it up. And we like that because it keeps it in agriculture. Right. Absolutely. Are there any kind of strong local movements near you guys to keep farmland in farming? Yeah, well, I think there was probably more activity on preservation a few years ago when the, the state uh, coffers were more flush. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's still, I think, funds out there. Our farm went into preservation in 2009, I believe. Cool. So it can never be subdivided or developed. And a lot of other properties have done that as well. Well, and along with that, sorry, that's like free association. Um, I know that, um, and this is kind of an, I don't know, this is maybe an uglier part of the whole deal, but I know that a lot of farmland in Pennsylvania has been sold for that um, gas drilling um, or for the, the rights below the, um, you know, for the shale. Um, has that, is that something that's affected farming in your area or not so much? Well, it hasn't yet because we're in the Delaware River watershed region mm, okay. where there's no drilling allowed. But, yeah, this area uh, has definitely been targeted by the gas companies for development. Wow. And what about um, cheesemakers kind of throughout the state? What kind of trends or, or changes have you noticed since you started making cheese in Pennsylvania? Well, um, I'd, in general, just that there's more of them. I think I counted maybe four years ago on our Pennsylvania Farmstead and Artisan Cheese Alliance board. Maybe we had 17 members. Okay. And I know there's more been added since then. Um, but I would say, though, it seems like the majority of them are in the southeast around the Philadelphia, Lancaster area. Right. And up here, like in the northeast, uh, I don't probably don't know of any but us. Wow. You know, we've got a lot of agriculture up there, a lot of dairy. And, I, and we always looked at this as a a very uh, noble way to uh, to preserve your dairy farm by going value added. Mm-hmm. Because once the farms stop milking, you know, and go away, your houses go up, like the farms never come back. Right. Absolutely. Is that where the name of the cheese comes from? You guys are following the Noble Road? <laughs> Making sure. I'd like to say, yeah, actually, Noble Road is, a, is a, one of the roads that borders the farm, and the Noble Farm was on that road. It's one of the ones no longer, no longer in operation. So we try to honor that family name, you know. Cool. Well, um, we, we've just got a couple minutes left, but can you tell us quickly about that um, Pennsylvania Cheesemakers Association? Well, I wish I could tell you more. I don't really know a lot. It hasn't been very active. It seemed like it, it got some legs under it about four years ago, and I haven't heard a lot of activity since, which is um, a little disappointing because you look at some states and they're so organized and together, like, you know, Vermont always comes to mind, but even New York has a nice network now. Yeah, yeah. So we need to get our cheesemakers together, I think, and, and get them working together as well. Yeah, and what about, um, do you do any uh, work or, or workshops or 
um, exchange of ideas through PASA, the Pennsylvania Association for Sustainable Agriculture? Well, yeah, we are we're members of PASA. We love PASA. Um, Emily, I believe she, maybe last year's conference or the year before, she taught like the, or spoke at like the intermediate cheese making course, pre-track conference. Um, and then every year, you know, we send our products out there for, if we can't make it, which we often can't with three children under the age of five. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> um, but they do, a, they do a fantastic job, I think, of representing the farms in this yeah, state. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, uh, so if people want to find your farm, uh, how can they do it? Do you got, um, can you give our listeners your website so everyone can research and hopefully come visit you in the summer? Yeah, I'd be happy to. It's, uh, it's, just, it's quite simply CalkinsCreamery.com, and you spell Calkins like chalk. And it's uh, C-A-L-K-I-N-S, Creamery.com, and we're on Facebook. And we are right on the Delaware River uh, in northeast PA, across from, from, uh, from Bethel, New York. Got to get out to see yeah. you guys. That's a, a hop, skip, and a jump. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for taking time to be on the show today, Jay. And I look forward to eating some of that Noble Road this weekend. Stay with uh, us. Thanks. thanks for having me. We love, we love the show, and we'll be looking forward to listening to the podcast. Thank you. Now this is a story all about how my life got flipped, turned upside down. And I'd like to take a minute, just sit right there. I'll tell you how I became the prince of a town called Bel Air. Born and raised on the playground is where I spent most of my days Chilling out, maxing, relaxing, all cool and all shooting some b-ball outside of the school When a couple of guys who were up to no good Started making trouble in my neighborhood I got in one little fight and my mom got scared And said, you're moving with your auntie and uncle in Bel-Air I begged and pleaded with her day after day But she packed my suitcase and sent me on my way She gave me a kiss and then she gave me my ticket We're back on Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network <laughs> I'm your host, Anne Saxelby My co-host today is Sophie Schlesinger And we're talking the state of cheese in Pennsylvania That lovely little ditty I, <laughs> I have uh, <laughs> any excuse to listen to Will Smith course, <laughs> rap about Philadelphia. Um, so our second guest, uh, Trent Hendricks, actually hails from a farm not far from Philadelphia. Um, Trent, are you with us? I am. Thank Hi, you Trent. so much for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Um, so can you tell us a little bit, uh, Your is the name of your farm uh, the full name Hendricks Farm? or Hendricks Farms and Dairy, and we're in Telford, Pennsylvania, just about 40 minutes north of Philadelphia. Great. And uh, what what sort of things do you produce on the farm? Um, obviously, you have a dairy, so there's cheese, but what about uh, other products? We do a full line of charcuterie. Uh, we have a butcher shop uh, on farm as well, and uh, we do a lot of cured meats, a lot of retail cuts, um, all of our own uh, sausage and so forth processing in addition to both cow and goat cheese, which are milked right on site, fully farmstead. Wow. Wow. So how, um, can you tell us about the history of your farm? Was uh, the farm in the family for a long time, or is it a more recent venture? Well, actually, we're first generation, my wife and I and our children. And uh, about 10 years ago, we did a career shift. And uh, about five years ago, we moved to our current facility. And um, we started milking a family cow for uh, children's 
uh, for raw milk and decided we wanted to take it a little further and made some cheese and uh, got a little fortunate at some cheese shows and things started to go off from there. Wow. And can you tell us a little bit about, um, if you don't mind sharing, kind of what you were doing before farming and what inspired you to to start farming and start making cheese? Well, we all I always wanted to farm. was told you couldn't do it if you weren't born into it. Right. And uh, started a transportation firm holding, hauling uh, cattle mostly, figuring if I can't be a farmer, I'll at least be close to it. And uh, did that for about 10 years, developed that, sold the business, and, and was able to uh, see an opportunity with the raw milk cheese to create a new business profile. and made a significant paradigm shift, and here we are. Well, that's, I, I've, well, there are so many questions right on the tip of my tongue, but the first one I feel like is uh, relates to the transportation part. How um, do you see any, um, I don't know, I feel like distribution is the biggest problem for most small, you know, small-scale cheesemakers. Um, do you have any thoughts about, I don't know, how that, needs to shift for people to actually uh, be able to get their products to market and do you see anybody doing interesting work in Pennsylvania with distribution? Well these are significant challenges and they're only going to become more so between regulation and fuel costs. Uh, these are giant hurdles and I believe one either needs to be very high shelf um, top quality producer marketing specifically in their locality to reduce any additional costs, or they need to produce at sufficient volume to justify large shipping options, whether it be by the pallet or by the truckload. Right. Otherwise, that middle area is extremely uncomfortable and really stresses the margins trying to have a foot in both ponds. Uh, we are fortunate. We do the vast majority of our sales retail uh, on-farm. Uh, we do not do farmers markets. We've also shipped trailer loads of cheese uh, to uh, large distributors. And uh, while that works and that's successful and there's nice margin, it we felt it was not who we started out to be and what we wanted to be. So we don't do that any longer. Uh, we're fortunate that we have a very reliable, consistent, dedicated customer base. And so we're able to put our focus back into our craft and and uh, we're very blessed that people appreciate what we're doing to the degree that uh, we're allowed to continue doing it. Yeah, well, that's um, uh, so maybe that's a good place to switch gears and then ask about the raw milk end of things because it seems like you are a very passionate advocate for raw milk. Um, can you tell us about why you believe so strongly in it and um, a little bit about maybe challenges you face being a raw milk cheesemaker? Yeah, we're a little less vocal on our passion for raw milk, um, being in the industry for 10 years and getting smacked around a little bit by the state uh, has tempered uh, some of our missionary zeal for raw milk. Uh, however, we do believe in it just as much as ever. It's uh, every aspect of our farm and the food we produce, we produce first for our family and we believe in the restorative healing powers of raw food and uh, food that has not been processed uh, significantly. And so that was our primary motive. Uh, when we wanted raw milk for our children, we did the logical thing and went out and bought a cow. Of course, having always enjoyed you know, a hobby level of farming, it was not a giant leap for us. But nonetheless, 
that is the reason we got started. And I think a lot of people today have come to appreciate uh, low processed or, or non-processed foods and, and we want to encourage that, but we also feel that everybody needs to educate themselves, make their own decisions up, uh, come to the conclusions on their own. There's a lot of people who would benefit greatly by turning off their television and picking up a book. And uh, we encourage people not to drink raw milk because we think it's good for you. We encourage you to go out and decide for yourself whether it's the right choice. Our job is not to teach people to drink raw milk. Our job is to produce the safest, best quality, healthiest, most tasty raw milk we can. And should you decide that it's good for you, we'd love to have you come to our farm and buy it. Uh, but everybody needs to make that decision for themselves. Now, can you recommend for our listeners any good sources for learning about raw milk, be it on the internet or books, anything that you like in that department? Yeah, the Weston A. Price uh, people are pretty passionate, and they've uh, gone to great lengths to make information available. Um, most farms that produce raw milk would love to chat with anybody uh, that comes to them to ask about raw milk. I think uh, going online, there's many sources. Uh, Devil in the Milk uh, is a good book choice. So there's a lot of options out there. Uh, Ten years ago, it was a little harder to find information. Eat Wild, uh, another great source for raw grass-fed uh, food choices. So there's there's a number of options out there today. That's great. Well, thanks for the recommendations. I feel like that's a very common question that I get in the store, and uh, it's always good to have some, some new ideas and new uh, places to send people to learn. Um, so how about, uh, you, you know, you said you're located pretty close to Philadelphia, um, and it seems like there's a lot of interesting uh, food stuff, especially re- with relation to local food happening in Philly. Um, could you talk to us about that? Do you have any interaction with that as far as dealing with restaurants or chefs or just customers driving up from the city? We don't get involved with the restaurants to the degree today that we used to. Uh, we do service some restaurants, but the vast majority of them come to the farm and make their own selections. Um, we've been fortunate to be involved with, with some key players in the local food industry. Um, but the last number of years, we've just really focused in on our craft, and, and we've been blessed to have a ready market that we've not had to go bang on doors uh, looking for the business. We've fortunately been around long enough that uh, we have a steady client base, and so that's been a that's been a pleasure that is not often afforded to a new business, but uh, after surviving the challenging startup years, we're able to devote more of our attention to our craft and, um, and maintain the relationships with, with our customers. And now, I think, um, did the, so how, you, I was thinking, you know, it's very challenging, obviously, financially and otherwise, to start a, a cheesemaking business, did, but um, did you guys feel anything at all from the recession in the past couple of years, or has the business kind of been very steady? Yeah, we did have some challenges, uh, you know, uh, our price per pound cheese, the, uh, we definitely hit a wall with what people were comfortable paying for, for routine food purchases. And, uh, you know, we've had to adjust. Unfortunately, being a grass-fed operation, uh, we've had a certain level of immunity to the high commodity prices uh, that affect a lot of traditional farms. Uh, so we've, we've been able to offset that. We've had to grow lean and mean. We've had to, to understand, you know, where our true margins are and, and to trim the fat, cut the waste. Uh, 
but we've been fortunate. You know, after uh, two challenging years, you know, we've we've definitely uh, felt the pendulum swing to the other side, and and uh, we think that food buying population today has never been more educated, and uh, we're pretty fortunate that people today. Even though they've maybe reduced some of their expenditures, we have customers who have told us they've trimmed here or there or any other area so that they can maintain uh, their diet and, and come out to the farm and support something they believe uh, is important to the community. So one neat thing about natural foods, grass-fed, organic, raw milk type people is they're a pretty educated bunch and they're pretty passionate and they're extremely loyal so that's that's something i would definitely encourage people uh, to do that want to get into this business is to take the time to develop and nurture the relationships with their customers yeah as a shopkeeper i can i can totally identify with that it's super super important um well we have one other question that's kind of an oddball but we thought maybe you would know um in in doing some research about pennsylvania dairy traditions we came across a phenomenon called cup cheese have you heard anything about cup cheese or do you know what it's all about three words gag a maggot (laughs) so (laughs) so it's not your favorite (laughs) (laughs) there are folks that like it um basically it's we've never made it we've tasted it and um i'm i'm sure there are people who are dedicated to it and and that's wonderful um it is definitely an eclectic (laughs) cheese doesn't taste like much um that's good and uh you know what is it what is it what is it like i mean do they is it served in a cup like what is yeah the the folks that we've seen uh consume it uh put it on bread uh usually white irradiated flour bread and it drips off and runs down your chin and just tastes like rot wow Wow. All right. Well, you heard but it that here could first. That be my opinion. <laughs> you heard it here first. Don't eat the cup cheese. No, it's actually very funny. When a customer of mine um, came into the store the other day and mentioned it, and she's, she had gotten it at a food co-op here in Brooklyn, and I was, I was, you know, I was stumped, and I'm not often stumped by a <laughs> what's this cheese question. So thank you very much for enlightening us. Yeah, it kind of goes along with scrapple and liverwurst. <laughs> now liverwurst I like Scrapple but You may like cup cheese then yeah. <laughs> Don't knock it till you try it That's true, That's true On our Pennsylvania road trip We can, uh, yeah. we can pick up some cup cheese yeah. <laughs> So Trent If people want to uh, find out more about your farm Do you guys have a, a website Or a way for people to find you guys Yeah HendrixFarmsAndDairy.com HendrixFarmsAndDairy.com Great Bet Excellent. Well, um, thanks so much for being on the show today. I really, uh, it's it's been a very interesting experience to hear about your farm, and uh, hope to hope to meet you guys one of these days. Wonderful. Don't be shy. Come out and visit anytime. All right. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, we will see you next Monday for another episode of Cutting the Curd on Heritage Radio Network. Bye. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. 
You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. Whole Foods Market celebrates Earth Month with the Do Something Real Film Festival, a collection of six provocative character-driven films focused on food, environmental issues, and everyday people with a greater vision. Come see one of the six features at City Cinemas Village East from Saturday, April 16th through Thursday, April 21st, every night at 6 p.m. Learn more about the films and special events at www.dosomethingreal.com. That's www.dosomethingreal.com. Sponsored by Whole Foods Market. The following message has been brought to you by Fairway Market. What's the buzz about honey? Well, those busy little bees are up to something, and it is delicious. The Fairway label honey is superb. Fairway only hires worker bees that are the best at what they do. This makes for a great-tasting, high-quality honey at an amazing value with the Fairway stamp of approval. And on top of being delicious, honey is a great substitute for other sweeteners and can even benefit your health. This includes better energy, respiratory improvements, and balanced blood sugar levels. It's a no-brainer. Get your Fairway honey today.